0: Today is Thursday, November, November, December, December, September the 4th, 2014, and this is episode 1419 of the Survival Podcast. i got a good one for you today. Mark Shepard, author of Restoration Agriculture and the owner of New Forest Ag and New Forest Farm, uh, he will be with us in just a few moments to talk about... Restoration agriculture and, and farming with permaculture methods on a large scale, on a production commercial scale, and, and not really just how to do it, but how to actually pay for it, how to actually get started from a financial aspect of things, how to finance things like putting together a 100-acre permaculture farm. I'll have him on in just a moment. Before we bring Mark on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is SafeCastle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. When we were teeny tiny, when there was nobody here, when I had like 10 people listening to me, I heard from this guy named Vic Runtala over at Safe Castle, He said, we like what you're doing. Um, you know, maybe we could do something together in the future. And a little while later, he called me and he said, hey, we want to sponsor the show. And I said, uh, no, I don't have enough listeners yet. I don't want to take your money. Um... I'm I'm not sure how to do this whole sponsorship thing yet. Let me figure that out, and when I'm ready, you'll have first crack. And when I had it ready, I told him, and he said, we're in. We were in months ago, but we're in now, and they've been with us now over six years. A six-year relationship with a sponsor and a podcast is unheard of. Um, It's something really, you you just don't even know many podcasts have been around six years. So uh, make sure that when you're getting something for your prepping needs, you consider Safe Castle as one of the longest supporters the show has. And they also have their discount Buyer's Club. It's $49. And then you get discounts on everything they sell forever. It's a lifetime membership, one-time payment. They'll give it to you free if you're a member of my support brigade. Really, our our longest and, and probably our most premium sponsor out there, Safe Castle. Next up today... Survival gear bags for great gear and the bags to put in the the bags to put great gear and bags to put the gear in. Check out survival gear bags created by Kelly John Doe right out of the survival podcast community. Kelly was on our forum years ago under the handle cart pusher. He was in the fulfillment industry, put together some group buys that grew into survival gear bags. And when I had a sponsorship opening and he was ready, I was happy to have him on board. Check him out today. Survival gear bags. They also support the Member's Support Brigade with 10% off all purchases and free shipping. On that note, do consider joining my Member's Brigade, Member's Support Brigade or MSB. If you join the MSB, you will be a supporting member of the show. You'll get discounts on a lot of great stuff, like stuff from Safe Castle, Survival Gear Bags, and about 40 other vendors. And you'll be helping to support the show at about $0.18.3 per episode. The membership pays for itself. If you're military law enforcement Peace Corps for a first responder like an EMT paramedic or firefighter, I do give you a discount to thank you for our for your service. The way that you get that discount is send me an email, one or two sentences telling me about your service, and I put service discount on the subject line, and mail that off to jack at the Survival Podcast.com. I'll respond back with a discount code to save you even more money on an already great product, but please email me before, not after you join. I can't do it. Once you've joined, it's complicated. I'll leave it at that. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1419. You know, usually, whenever I look at these, I immediately pick the one that I want to do. Usually, Alex does two or three per day for me on TSP Wiki, and... They're all good, but usually I'm like, man, that's that one. Sometimes I have a little bit of trouble choosing. Today, today, all three are awesome, uh, but I'm still only going to build read one in the uh, interest of time. I'm going to read When Government Goes Out the Window. Um, the other ones are 100 Years' War, The Hole That Let the English Through, and Tushima Island, The Attack on Pearl Harbor. Actually, that's the one that I'm going to read. I was so indecisive, I, I forgot that this was the one I decided to read, so when government goes out the window, you guys might really want to read that at tspwiki.com, year 1419. Uh, Toshima Island and the attack on Pearl Harbor. Japan cannot seem to control the pirates on Toshima Island, so the Koreans are going to control the pirates for them. This has been an ongoing problem, but last year the man the Koreans set up to control the problem died. The pirates overwhelmed the remaining Korean forces due to impending starvation. These pirates have set sail to China to beg for food. But along the way, they hit a couple Korean ports and do what pirates do. The Koreans launch a raid on the island while they are gone and burn 129 ships, 1,939 houses, and kill or, ca- and kill or capture 135 pirates. The Korean force is repelled, but they come to an understanding with one of the pirate clans that keeps, that keeps the clans all, all the other clans in line. My take by Alex Shrug. In the Battle of Tushima Strait in 1905, the Japanese will crush the Russian Baltic fleet. Theodore Roosevelt will win the Nobel Prize for negotiating the treaty. At the end of the Russo-Japanese War, the Japanese will riot in the streets. The treaty conditions will limit the number of ships Japan can float, but not the tonnage. That limit and oversight will force the Japanese to mothball their old fleet and build a newer fleet with larger, more capable ships with the latest technology. Their fleet will have range and power to hit Pearl Harbor, and Teddy Roosevelt will give them the oldest reason in the world to do so. Revenge, baby, revenge. My take by Jack Spiracle on all of this. I I think that we have a very short memory in society today and we tend not to see how things that we do today might have major impacts on the world two, three hundred years from now. Or many of the things that are happening today go back hundreds or even thousands of years. In many cases, if they go back a hundred or fifty or two hundred years, they're things that we ourselves were party to. And sometimes the chickens come home to roost and sometimes that's not good. With that, I've got uh, the housekeeping wrapped up today and I want to say, uh, I'm really excited to have our special guest today. Mark Shepard is the CEO of Forest Agricultural Enterprises, Agriculture Enterprises and runs New Forest Farm, a 106 acre perennial agricultural forest, considered by many to be the most ambitious sustainable agriculture project in the United States. I, tend to agree with that. Mark Shepard is doing the types of things now and has been doing them for a decade and a half that we are attempting to do with Permaethos going forward. And it's uh, my good pleasure to have him with us today. And with that, hey, Mark, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Jack. Um, we've got here today to talk about financing permaculture ventures and partnerships and farms. And I want to get into that, but before we do... Can you tell us maybe the elevator speech of how Mark Shepard ended up on a permaculture-style farm in the first place, you know, right up until the day you, you decided to do it, how, how you got into this? Because I know like many people in this world, you, you kind of took that wonky path through life.
1: <laughs> well, you know, you asked for the elevator speech. It, it it just might be a very, very long elevator.
0: That's okay, man. <laughs> <clears throat>
1: well, uh, I had grown up in uh, economically disadvantaged um, circumstances and realized in a real hurry that if I wanted anything in life, I was either going to have to strap myself to a desk for 20 years and then maybe finally get a uh, a piece of land in the country just when I'm old enough to start having heart attacks and triple bypass surgery and all that. (laughs) And uh, I realized that that, uh, that model of... You know, getting a, a good education, getting a good job, and slogging it out for 20 years so you can maybe retire on a little postage stamp up on the lake wasn't going to work for me. So I, uh, heh, I became an avid student of uh, infomercials, late-night infomercials, and get-rich-quick seminars. And it was it was from a lot of those that I picked up a lot of the uh, financial strategies uh, that got us into the position that. When the opportunity came up, we were able to actually move on a piece of property and and uh, and make it happen. Gave me a lot of the uh, the language to use, the tools to use in order to get a piece of property. Um, but what really led me to it uh, was probably I was only 18 years old. I'm 51 now. I uh, <clears throat> read a book by J. Russell Smith called Tree Crops. It was originally written in uh, 1926. And he, he, uh, wrote that book during a time when the tractor had first been invented and there was wholesale slaughter of the forests and, uh, ripping out all the stumps and growing corn straight up and downhill and erosion was rampant. It was when the whole, uh, soil conservation service was first created to address the issue of all this erosion. One of his answers was to grow tree crops. You know, trees that have, you know, fruits and nuts, uh, and berries. And then feed those, uh, fruits, nuts, and berries to livestock and then graze on the grass underneath. And it seemed to me that that was a, uh, perfectly ecological model imitating the savanna where we could have, you know, scattered trees, shrubs, and vines with livestock grazing all around. It seemed like a really, a really nice, uh, nice way to live. So that was one of my real motivators was, was to live in a rich, lush, three-dimensional, uh, ecosystem instead of a, little track subdivision in Massachusetts.
0: Yeah, and I I bet like many of us, you suffer from what I call, they have an easy syndrome where people look at it the way it is now and they go like, well, you know, look at his property and look at what he's got going on and all. And they they don't really realize what it takes to to build something into that, that we, we tend to all start with nothing and have to get somewhere. You actually started, your family, when you guys got on that farm, you were, in your own words, broke and more than $50,000 in debt. How were you able to finance land, equipment, living quarters, as we're working on building Permaethos? I mean, we we're learning everything is expensive. Uh, everything costs money, and you always need more than you think you need, it seems like. And you have to make really astute financial decisions as you're, as you're building a farm.
1: The, the one of the things I did want to, I want to pull you back to is you said everything is expensive. What we have to do as permaculturists, if we are going to observe the system conditions and then design systems that create earth care, people care, and some sort of equitable social economic justice type thing, we need to know the difference between an observation and a concept. An observation is something that you can see here, taste, touch, smell, measure with instruments, uh, derive through testing. It's something that you can do over and over and over again and still observe the same phenomena, whereas a concept is purely an intellectual idea. It's supposed to describe reality, but it really actually masks reality. When you say the word expensive, that is a concept. What you're doing is you're laying your concept uh, on top of reality, and you will see everything through the lens of your concept. You will see if, if you say that getting a farm is expensive, you'll see everything is expensive, expensive, expenses. What are your options for creating abundance when everything is expensive? However, if we look at the actual observation, land costs X dollars per acre. Now I know that I've got X dollars per acre I've got to come up with. I've got X dollars worth of taxes to come up with. These are observations that we can write down and figure it out and design our way through that uh, out to the other side. Make sense?
0: Well, it makes perfect sense. Um again, again though,
1: did I successfully I, avoid answering your question?
0: Yes, yes, Okay. No, I didn't <laughs> because, <mean to. laughs> no, I I actually I completely agree with you. And when I say something like everything is expensive, I'm I'm talking on behalf of the audience honestly. Yeah. Um I I get exactly what you're saying. Sounds like a show I did earlier this week. Um <laughs> because we do have to ask ourselves how, right? So in your particular right. how though, how did you go from being $50,000 in debt to be able to finance a 106 acre farm? Well,
1: uh, <laughs> first of all, there was, there's, uh, at least 10 years of previous history, uh, that's kind of hidden in that, uh, for the 10 years prior to that, I, I was actively building my credit. I was actively, uh, accumulating credit cards and things that I would purchase, uh, you know, like your day to day anything and everything, I would purchase with a credit card and then immediately uh, send the check in back in the days when you sent checks by mail to pay for credit cards, immediately send the check in to pay it off. And yes, that would, uh, when I made my payments uh, after interest was generated, uh, yes, that would generate some interest, but that's called a cost of doing business because the business I was in was building my credit rating to be able to borrow enough money to get a piece of land. And if you have a credit card, two credit cards right now, a couple thousand dollar limit, you can't use that credit really to help you buy land, which is costing hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars. So for, for the ten years before uh, my wife and I moved to Wisconsin here, we uh, had been, I me especially, I really exercised mine, had been building our credit. We also <clears throat> began to divide uh, our lives into the functions that they do. And uh, the function, I'll just, you know, pick two because these are, these are totally related to how we set this up here. One is the growing of food. Um, when you grow food and then sell it to a, a buyer, that is an agricultural act that's called a, a farm business. And so uh, the farm business isn't what owns the land. The farm business is that function within the, within the system. So we started to keep track of what we grew and what its retail price was. And you keep track of all this. At the time, it was on paper because we didn't have Excel spreadsheets and cool tracking software. We began to get into the habit, the regular habit, of keeping track of all of the things that we actually grew, when we planted it, how much we yielded, and what the retail value of that was. We learned how to manage a farm business way before we actually you know, bought this piece of property. Also <laughs> other uh non-farm uh activities I did uh, uh first of all started as a landscaper I like to say a landscaper I was a shovel jockey for uh, a long period of time my wife worked at a tree and shrub nursery uh at first we were employees of the company but then later on we became independent contractors and we agreed to work for the uh the main nursery of the, of the my landscape clients for a set fee, and then we would have to learn how to hustle our butts in order to get the job done faster so that we could actually end up with a a higher per hour rate of pay. So now we learned how to manage a non-agricultural business. And we were, of course, going to all these different get-rich-quick seminars, and so we learned how to make offers on real estate. And so what a great way to learn how to make offers on real estate is to uh, find someone who's an attorney that's a friend of yours or a friend of a friend, whatever it is, who will agree uh, verbally to reject any deal that you bring before them. And so you just make offers to purchase real estate. Uh, I'll you know, offer to purchase this real estate for no money down, and I'll make only, for example, one annual payment a year uh, with a very low interest rate. And then there's all these different contingency clauses in it, one of which is this offer is subject to approval by the uh, buyer's attorney. And so all of a sudden, if you get an offer accepted, and I had several offers I didn't expect to get accepted that got accepted, and so I had to go to an attorney friend and said, help, 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 because I can't afford to make the payments on this. Turn it down. And so he rejected the deal. But what we did is we got the practice of, and how many of you have practiced several times a month maybe, making an offer on real estate, a ridiculous offer on real estate? You know, no money down and no payments for like 27,000 years or whatever the deal is. That's ridiculous.
0: <laughs> I think I would have took that one, though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but you get in the practice of, of being in that position where when you're greeted by a, a realtor, you know, you're a player, you're in the business, you know, you're working your credit, you're, you're, uh, you have your own private business on the side, you may not be cash flowing much, and you're making offers on real estate. Uh, by looking at real estate, you will also see and realize when all of a sudden here comes a property on the market it is way undervalued compared to all the other properties, and you want to have the ability to be able to pounce as soon as you see that and you can't do that unless you already have lined up your ability to borrow your ability to manage uh, to manage borrowing um, and then the probably the most significant one that has been the most significant actually <clears throat> with us in our real estate adventures for the past 15 years is learning about various different uh, different ways to incorporate other people who may have cash and no interest in um, in in owning land <clears throat> and the form that is our current favorite is the uh, limited liability partnership where the general partner makes all of the decisions on the real estate and it's the limited partners who are the actual owners and so all of our properties since 1990 have been uh, owned as partnerships and and down payments, at minimum down payments, uh, were provided by the limited partner, and then we made the payment payments, you know, the monthly payments and all that. And so what would happen is we would set up a contract that the limited partner would get a favorable rate of interest, knowing that uh, we just po farmers, and we might not be able to make uh, payments back to them to buy out their share, and so we would get a real favorable uh uh, favorable terms on the on the down payment money, and so this current farm right here, this current real estate was purchased. Uh, the down payment was provided by uh, a fellow from Milwaukee, and there was a, a third partner who only lasted a, a few weeks, and then that second partner uh, lasted for a number of years, and then we ended up, ended up buying them out. So t- uh, to make a short answer long, how we went from being fifty thousand dollars in debt from student loans. To owning a hundred-acre farm was by borrowing more money. <laughs> have, you, have you ever heard? You've heard economics folks on on podcast and radio all the time. Oh, debt is money. This horrible fractional reserve system. Yeah. When I heard when I heard that phrase, "debt is money," it's like, wow, it is. Holy crap.
0: Yeah, and I am a I'm, I'm Mr. Anti Debt, but I am anti consumer debt. Uh, I I think if you're out buying stereos and, and stuff like that with now what you were doing was a credit building model uh, where you were paying the the, the payment immediately and I, I understand that but people that, that leverage their lives into massive debt I don't think makes sense when you're leveraging debt against real property you have a tangible asset with real value on the other side of that debt and and that is the the, the smart way to leverage money I, I have always found people that claim to uh, want to make money with real estate, but yet don't ever want to have any debt on real estate to be living in some kind of fantasy land. It's, it's, it's like the one place that debt actually makes a lot of sense. You want to pay off your own house? Go for it. I think that's a great play eventually. But when it comes to leveraging commercial real estate, especially the, the entire system is set up so that if you don't leverage debt, you are at an inherent disadvantage from everybody else that does.
1: If if you don't actually borrow the money to acquire assets that appreciate in value, you're paying other people's mortgages. That's true. You're 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 the you're the bottom of the heap paying everybody else's everybody else's payments. And one of the things about uh, acquiring real estate, especially when you first get off, you can't you you can't really afford to borrow much. So the properties that you're looking at, you're going to look at the cheapest, most inexpensive ones. And since I wasn't interested in you know rental real estate or, you know, commercial real estate, none of that. I wanted to get out into the woods. When you go out to the rural areas, the least expensive properties are the least desirable according to most of the market. They have, you know, uh, our first property we bought was a clear cut. True story. Absolute clear cut. It was Mm. disgusting. It was pathetic. However, you want to talk about real value added. We can buy a distressed asset. It was a clear cut that somebody was missing payments on. So we were able to help them out. They could clear their credit, and we got this clear cut, and then we could just plant it back to all kinds of beautiful things. We actually increased its real value on the real planet. Then we built a recreational cabin on that for just for the materials and a couple of weeks hanging out with my brother-in-law, you know, swinging hammer and banging nails, maybe even drinking a little bit of recreational ethanol. We increased <laughs> the value of the property even more. So when we are permaculture uh, real estate investors, we're looking for the worst of the worst because permaculture has a model that nobody else does. We can take a rock and we can join with nature's forces of, of natural succession and we can create soil, we can create biodiversity, we can create abundance, we can feed ourselves, we can have a surplus that we then Uh, hand off to others, and they thank us with dollars. It's a hugely successful business model if we look at it that way.
0: I think that's true. I think we do still have to look at things like water access structure and property potential timelines, though, with that. I had a guy email me and said, I just bought 50 acres for almost nothing in West Texas, and he sent me this Google Earth shot with a rectangle on the side of a gray mountain And said, what should I do with it? And I said, well, can you get your money back? (laughs) I mean, so there are the extremes, but I get exactly what you're saying that a lot of the properties that are abandoned farms, that when, 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 when farming changed, they were no longer capable of making money anymore or that just land that's never been developed or, like you're saying, land that's been just used as nothing but a tree farm and, and for, for paper pulp or something like that, those are the places that we can step in and we can make rapid changes much quicker than I think most people realize.
1: And this particular farm southwest Wisconsin, uh, where we're at, is uh, called the Driftless area, and it's, it's not flat like the rest of the Midwest. It's about an 80-mile uh, diameter. It's actually a canyon. This big, huge Grand Canyon in the middle of the Upper Mississippi River. So there's flat land up on the ridges and there's flat land down in the valleys. And then the canyon walls, the shoulders go off, and the canyon walls are quite steep. And times it's like broken, uh, broken rock and cliffs. Well, once upon a time, uh, when more farmers, uh, this is dairy country extraordinaire. Uh, when more farmers grazed their animals, those shoulders and the, and the steep slopes were used for grazing, so it was actually utilized. Then, as the shift happened and more and more animals were confined and more row crops were grown, in part because of government subsidies, uh, you know, paying you to grow crops that really shouldn't be grown there, um, people would abandon their their uh, their shoulders and, their, and the edges, uh, and it would all grow back to brush, uh, or they would graze it. Uh, if it was a dairy herd, they'd graze their young stock out there, and then eventually they'd pull off pull off their uh, all their grazing out of there. So what we got here was about 30% was cropped. It was uh, abandoned cornfields when we got it, and then the other 60% had been abusively grazed. Like there wasn't a there wasn't a sprig of grass taller than a golf course green. It was really really hammered, totally compacted. Any topsoil had washed away. You know, 50, 60 years ago, it was all red clay. Um, and we had maybe an acre of uh, woods, but really wasn't woods. It was more like uh, overgrown brush. Mm-hmm. So if you're a young 20 odd permaculturist and you want to go live in, in the beautiful harmony of nature and all that kind of stuff, this did not look like that. <laughs> it did not look like that. But it was it was the cheap of the cheap. You know, you could not get less expensive real estate in this area than those properties because the row crop farmers aren't going to go after it because it's, it's too crooked and it's too uh, rocky recreational people who want a beautiful hunting lodge in the woods don't want it because there's no woods. So it was perfect. It was perfect to be a undervalued property that had a huge, uh, you know, upside.
0: What are some of your strategies when you're dealing with steep land like that? I mean, the property that we're working in, West Virginia, is 110 acres, uh, very steep elevation changes, uh, the, the typical mountains of northern West Virginia. Um, and, you know, we're looking at doing some terracing and some uh, some swales, probably one main swale on the first piece that we're developing. Uh, I mean, there's just some level of restriction when you get into to truly steep slopes. You can work with the, the ridge lines and you can work with ledges and, and, and shelving, but there is certain limitations there.
1: Well, and when it's you know really really steep, that is that's where trees rock.
0: And mm-hmm. so, uh,
1: oftentimes, what I'll do with with clients and on on our own property uh, properties, what what we'll do is on the steepest slopes, as you go through, and you you mark all the trees <clears throat> that have uh, either uh, potential commercial value as saw logs, and or produce nuts or fruits. <clears throat> you mark those, and then you remove. Uh, through a period of years, you know, take two, three, four, five, hell, or seven, ten years to remove the ones that are not your your prized trees. And when you make openings that are big enough, you fill them in with your useful trees, you know, cherries and chestnuts and, you know, grapes and mulberries and all that kind of stuff. And you use livestock uh, grazing underneath to keep the re-sprouts of the undesirable species uh, at bay in uh you could look at um, University of Missouri. Columbia has a lot of information on silvo pasture, and it's not grazing your cows in the woods. It's taking a piece of land and managing it simultaneously for both uh, woody crop production and for forage. Excuse me while I shut off my cell phone. No worries. All right, it's all cut out. <laughs> it usually doesn't work down here.
0: <laughs> funny. Well, it's good to hear you say that. That's exactly kind of the approach we're taking because I was very familiar with your work before we got into working on this property, and uh, I looked at your your concept of alley cropping, and I went, "Oh, that's beautiful. We'll we'll do that." And then I walked on that property and said, "I don't know how much zucchini we're going to grow here, but we, you know, there's <laughs> clover and grass everywhere already wherever it's open." So. You know, we can, we can take that approach. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's what we're doing. So, it's good to hear somebody that's been doing it for 15 years say to do yeah, that.
1: And, and the thing is, too, is, is if we're actually going to live in a place and if we are really going to develop that place to be a, a rich, lush, you know, human habitat, that means we're going to live here a long time. We're not going to go in and do all of the, the wood cutting in five minutes. It's going to take one, two, three, five, ten years, like I said, and and it's no big deal. We have a long-term plan. That's part of the wonders of permaculture is we start with this grand pattern, and then we work our way down details. So we have our overall pattern, our overall strategy of what we're going to do, and then we just poke away at it for the rest of our lives, because what else are you going to do?
0: what's your vision for permaculture products in the Midwest and beyond like who's going to be growing these products? Who are the buyers? You know we look at that 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 world and it's 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 you know corn is king and uh i don't think anybody's ever done as good a job as stabbing the heart out of King corn as you in your book restoration agriculture uh, but But how do you see that transformation coming because you know one of the things I took away from permaculture voices was Joel Salton's comment that the average farmer today is sixty six years old. And then when you're 66 years old, you don't have time to learn nothing new. And I'm thinking, you know, as big of a student as I am at 44, I t- things that I do know how to do well, I I, I got I got that covered. Like, I'm going to go learn something new on something else. So how do we transform this current system? Because like one of the – in the PDC we're teaching right now, one of the questions that came up from students was, well, you know, can we really get there? And my response is we can get there, but there has to be a timeline. If right now I could wave a wand and make – all of North America into exactly what you're building with a snap of my fingers, the problem would be that the distribution systems are not set up for it, the cultural systems are not set up for it. There has to be this massive transformation. So how do we begin that?
1: Well, that's not true at all. The distribution system is absolutely 100% totally set up. The processing infrastructure is 100% totally all set up. What has to happen is we actually have to grow enough products to justify putting together the facilities that will now... Uh, you know, process that, turn into value-added products. There is a food system in place. If, if anybody listening to this actually ate today, you eat yep. from the industrial food system. That system is, is very, very functional for those who actually have money and can play the game. Just before all you go on, so do, that I'm clear. All you need to do is, is insert new ingredients to that. Uh, there's 7 billion people on this planet. Everything is for sale, even pet rocks.
0: Let me let me just be, make sure I'm clear on the way I'm asking that question, then. So what I'm saying is tomorrow, if at a Nabisco plant, when all the corn was showing up, it was full of chestnuts, they're not ready for it yet.
1: Because there's not enough chestnuts to fill the line. I
0: agree, I agree. But how do we get That's to that price?
1: How, how we get there is by planting more. And how do we plant more is think about this for a second. If the average age of the, of the American farmer is 66 years old, what an incredible opportunity. Mm-hmm. We're going we're gonna to turn over... Like 30 to 40 percent of American real estate is going to turn over in the next 20 years. That's a huge opportunity. We have to have permaculturists ready in place who understand how to borrow money, how to manage their finances, uh, you know, how to not be financially stupid uh, and not to be naive and and buy this land. And what's going to happen? It will. Uh, what will happen is you you will first buy your property and say, Oh my gosh, this is too expensive. But, no, the price of real estate is what the price of real estate is, and long-term, it always goes up, always has. So what we need to do is be ready to pounce and convert these systems over. Parallel with that, we have the other structures in place that are in process. Right now, all across the country, there are uh, co-ops and LLCs, aggregation companies, that aggregate products from a number of smaller growers, so it's the aggregation company that becomes the the value-add, um, and that's what accesses the large uh, larger-scale food system. And I'll use one little example. <clears throat> I'm a 20-year member of the Organic Valley Co-op. Most people are familiar with their dairy products. When I joined, I was grower number 24. Wow. Every, everybody in the company could sit around two picnic tables. And, uh, we had about $300,000 in annual sales. We dreamed of the day that someday we would have a million dollars in sales because then we'd be on easy street. Well, last summer, as of last summer, there were about 2,600 members who own a piece of the company and, uh, about a billion dollars in sales. So the, the potential for permaculturists to now form their aggregation company, get their products, into the form that the market recognizes and everything everything that you can grow on your place in, in West Virginia, everything has a huge international mass market, but you have to get it into the form that the market recognizes and you have to actually have enough to fill that, that system. So I predict that the future of permaculture farming in the USA, it's going to be the fastest growing uh, real estate development and the fastest growing food category in the market within Six or seven years you just watch Cause,
0: I, I agree what, with what's you. the what's the alternative what's the, the alternative, alternative is more of suburban hell and more of row cropping that's that's the that's the only other alternative that's that's why I agree with you and I think that we're going to see and I'm wondering what you think the thoughts are on this we're not just going to see the development of permaculture farms we're going to see more development of permaculture style communities uh more li- more places where people live and and, and the biggest problem we have right now to me is that there seems to be this 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 dogpiling of new regulations that try to separate where people live from where our food is grown right. and separate animals from where vegetables are grown and and those two things have to be countered and I think the only way we can do it is with momentum like if there's enough people wanting to do it, the people trying to separate it will go well, we know who we work for and as long as they pay their taxes let them do it
1: yeah it'll It'll, it'll be separated by success. Is if, if you continue to play with, like, 16 bricks in your backyard to make rocket stoves to show how permaculture is so cool, uh, you're never going to change the world. If you're going to go out there and, and radically change the ecology over hundreds of millions of acres and supply actual food to actual people in actual markets, uh, then all of a sudden you have economic power. You're, you're providing jobs. We are economic development of the future, because even if everything does, you know, theoretically get pushed towards row crops, which is where they're pushing, we got to genetically modify and spray everything. Mm-hmm. As the cost of the inputs go up, um, the model that imitates nature, the costs go down over time. And you, those two business models, uh, there is no competition. You cannot compete with the long-term, low-cost success of natural systems. Nature has never spent a penny on fertilizer, fungicide, herbicide, pesticide, disease control, tillage, none of that.
0: No, I completely agree. And I think that when we look at establishment, there seems to be a lot of cost up front, equipment, planting, etc., But the approach that you've taken moderates that a lot over the way people are thinking. Because here's what happens to the person that's in the small-scale mindset. They have a a homestead like I do. I have a homestead here in Texas where I actually live. It's three acres. And you go out and you decide you're going to plant three-quarters of an acre into uh, a food forest. And then just the trees are $5,000. And then you look at perennials and bushes and shrubs and things like that and then somebody that's in that mode, that hasn't expanded their thinking, says, how the hell would I plant 100 acres? Where you go in and like you planted, I think almost all of your chestnuts were planted from seed. And that is a hell of a lot more affordable and you end up with an opportunity for selection through killing and through neglect. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, uh, <laughs> Most trees grow from seed. That's kind of where they come from. Yeah. Um, how I would grow them from seed, now think about this. You, you think about, let's just, I'm going to throw out some theoretical numbers. A hundred acres, let's say there's a thousand trees per acre, five bucks a tree. That says half a million dollars in trees went into this farm. There's actually a lot more trees than that and probably a lot more dollars worth of trees went into this farm. Well, how on earth can I afford that? It's too expensive. Those concepts right there stop me. And then I look at the evidence of my life and say, geesh, I tried to do it on a half an acre and it cost me $5,000. I'll never be able to afford that. <clears throat> or you can say, wow, there are tree and shrub nurseries out there that currently are in the business of growing trees and shrubs, and every business person would like their business to do better. How can I help that tree and shrub nursery to do better? I'll go out and collect the seed off the trees that I've found grown wild in my neighborhood, uh, that nobody takes care of, nobody planted plowed, herbicide, fungicide, etc. I'll gather the seed and I'll go up, hey, Mr. Nurseryman, instead of you buying seed from seed collectors, I will give you this seed for free. All of a sudden you got their attention. You've just made their business better. Then you say, alright, and what I'll do is I'll guarantee to, to buy every single one of these trees, uh, that you grow at, at your rock bottom wholesale price. And, You'll have a deal. you have takers everywhere. So what you've just done is you've helped somebody else's business to be better. He doesn't have to pay money for his seed supply, and he doesn't have to worry about making sales. You guarantee everything's sold, and you supply him with the seed. I mean, that, that's a home run.
0: <clears throat>
1: so that, that's, that's a lot of where, where our nursery stock came from. It still comes from.
0: And that's brilliant because basically you've created a workforce without any of the headaches of a workforce. I don't, I don't worry to, about you. I don't I have to learn. I'm falling in sick. If they change the healthcare regulations where I have to cover contractors, I don't care. I, I here's your seed. I'll buy your plants.
1: And so many permies look at you know look at the price of trees and then they, then they look at seed. It's like well gee whiz I can just stick them in the ground and it's like cheap for me. It doesn't cost me any money. And what you're going to do is you're going to stick these seeds in the ground. Not as many are going to sprout they're not going to grow as fast they're not going to be as healthy and vigorous as somebody who's a professional nurseryman who's been in the business for 5, 10, 15, 20 years they know what they're doing they've got all the tools they can do it en masse they can do it far more affordably and they can produce 10 times the plant that you can by buying the seed the cheap seed hides you know, an expensive plant that you put in the ground there's no money that you put out for it but it's, it's, a, it's an inferior plant because you never gave it that head start that it needs
0: so did you plant all of the trees that you planted? And let's forget about the stuff that was already growing there or, or grew on its own. Did you plant all of them from seedlings, tublings, things like that? Did you plant nothing from direct seed?
1: No, um, I did uh, a lot of uh, oaks and black walnut from direct seed. Okay. Uh, a lot of hickories from direct seed, yeah.
0: But the the chestnut, I, I always had gotten the impression that you had planted those uh, directly into the ground. But you, I guess you planted it with seedlings.
1: How we started? How we started with, with all of the different species that we started with, because this is part of what we need to do is get the genetic, uh, the genetic diversity for the resilience that we need in our systems. I bought nursery stock from every single nursery that I could possibly find at the time: East Coast, West Coast, North Coast, South Coast. I got chestnuts from everybody, and then I planted those seedlings in the ground. I, I kept notes: <clears throat> who provided, who produced the best nursery stock, and then later on, whose genetics were the best excuse me for a minute and so uh, then when I put them in the ground I treated them not with sheer total utter neglect but more like strategic total utter neglect I would try to do a little weed control around them do a little bit of mowing um, but it didn't always happen because I was trying to put so many in at the time so my first selection genetic selection if you call it that were trees that could compete with a heavy midwestern grass sod if you're in Texas the first selection would be trees that would be able to survive your droughty, hot summers. That would be the first... And alkaline
0: soil, that yeah, that's...
1: Through. Right, yeah, right. <laughs> then uh, once I had the ones that survived, I took note of which nurseries they came from, and I didn't buy material from the ones that had losers, and I continued to buy the ones from the winners. And uh, what I noticed is several of the plants would start to produce seed within two or three years, and I'd flag those with survey ribbon, and then I would save their seed and replant them. And it was probably by five or six years into doing this, I began to have so many seed that I could begin to sell nursery stock. Now I have another income stream coming mm-hmm. into the farm. I'm, I'm providing my own nursery stock uh, that, that's basically free of charge. Every tree on this farm basically went in at a profit.
0: That's, that's awesome, Mark. It really okay. is.
1: And so, and so, if I have to borrow money, go from $50,000 in debt to way the hell more than $50,000 in debt, in order to take a degraded piece of planet and imitate its natural biome, which is the oak savanna, with the species composition, those are the species that I'm using, are all savanna species. So I borrow money to uh, re- restore uh, oak savanna to a land that's been oak savanna for you know sixty five million years, and plant every tree out of profit, and you know build my own home off grid, wind and solar, raise a happy family, have a really good rich life. Why wouldn't I borrow the money? Because debt is bad. Well, that's a concept, isn't it?
0: It is, and I think the the one thing you have to think about as a business person then is servicing the debt. So. Uh, for instance, when I bought the home I have now, which is about a quarter million dollar home, um I went to a mortgage company and said, I'm going to be buying a home. I want to be pre-approved. I don't want to have to do squat. I want to be able to walk into a seller and go, here's your offer. I need a letter, that, 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 not pre-qualification, but pre-approval. Submitted all the paperwork, couple little documents go along with tax returns. Letter comes back says, you're qualified to borrow $900,000. Oh. I said, well, no. No, I won't be doing that. Not for the home I'm gonna live in and in, in the station we were in life. So I could have gotten the money, but I there is no way I could have serviced that debt load. I guess right. I could have, but I would have had I would have had nothing else. So we go into a farm, we're gonna plant chestnuts and things like that. We also need to turn a profit in a relatively quick term. And what I remember you saying at Voices was that you were giving a talk one time and you talked about planting chestnuts and you said on the ground you planted the chestnuts, you made like $4,400 an acre the first year. and Somebody called you a liar or something like that out of the audience. You're like, I didn't, not at voices, but in the story you were telling, you're like, I didn't say I made it on chestnuts. So what are right. some of the strategies that while we're establishing this long-term high-profit low-input system, we can service that debt load until that yield becomes available for finance?
1: Yeah, and we had already talked a little bit about silvo pasture. That's one way is get that get, you know, some fence up, get some animals out there and start grazing and plant your trees at the same time. So you're grazing in between rows of trees. And then the other uh technique that's uh that was critical for, for our being able to, to stay here was uh alley cropping. And <clears throat> that you grow some sort of uh higher value crop uh starting with annuals. If you're like a corn and bean farmer, stay with your corn and beans and then plant a row of trees between your fields of corn and beans. You're not making any money off the trees in the short term. Um, it's going to take a few years, so don't sweat that, that you're not making any money off of that. Uh, and if you're a chemical farmer, use compatible herbicides with your trees so that when you're taking care of your alley crops, it's taking care of your trees. And so what you do is you cash flow short term with your alley crop. We relied heavily on uh, produce because we remember of the Organic Valley Produce Pool. And at one point in time, I was grown somewhere between 12 and 16 acres of uh, annual produce that was grown in between rows of the trees. But then you remember the trees went in, uh, you know, at either zero cost or at a profit. And so even if we only made 50 bucks off the off the annual crop, the net profit on that acre was it was a net profit uh, for that acre. Yeah, and you do have to you do have to uh, be able to service the debt. And this is where your your um, uh, ability to manage your credit comes into play, because as as a person who derives a large percentage of their income from farming, you know that for a certain time of year it's all expense, you're getting everything ready, and then a certain time of year it's all income. Mm-hmm. So what happens in the middle? How do you how do you float through that? So you you now learn the skills of of budgeting. You now have to learn the skills of, of basically living on nothing. And If you're a permaculture farmer, you've got all kinds of food growing, so our food budget is almost zero. My wife buys bananas, and then we buy things like mayonnaise. Um, that's it, because uh, everything else is, is, is grown here. <clears throat> and so you have to learn budgeting skills, which is very important, and then sometimes if you can't make a payment, you pay it with more debt. And that's why you want to have a broad uh, base of borrowing ability. And, you know, the ultimate are these 0% credit card, um, you know, courtesy checks or whatever they call those. All of a sudden, you're in a pinch. We don't have any cash. We can't make the mortgage payment. No problem. Just write a little credit card check for it. And it's called kicking the can down the road in case you haven't heard that phrase before. But we know that the road we're kicking it down is a 1,000-year-long road because we're growing trees. They're going to be here forever, and our costs are going down. You know, if you guys knew how much we actually paid for this place, you know, 20 years ago, it's it's laughable. But back then, it was
0: expensive. It was expensive. When it was expensive for what it was, it's it would, it would have been ridiculously cheap for what it's become.
1: Right, that's exactly right. So then that's where the value add comes in. And that's another strategy. And let's just take the, uh, clear cut up in, uh, up in the middle of the forest there, for example. You buy a clear cut, you replant a whole bunch of trees, you build a recreational cabin. Say you bought the property as a hypothetical example for $10,000. Well, then you spend $2,000 on trees, another $2,000 on building materials for this little cabin. You've now got a total of What, fourteen thousand dollars invested in this property. You go hire an appraiser for two hundred and fifty bucks, the appraiser comes in and says, Oh wow, you know, recreational property with cabin, fifty thousand dollars. You've now increased the value of your property by forty thousand dollars, and you can go to the bank and borrow that forty thousand dollars. And what do you do with that forty thousand dollars? You go buy the clear cut next to it. Do it again, and kick the can down the road. Pay off the first debt, buy the next one. Hmm. Increase its value borrow some more money pay off that debt go buy the next one one of the problems with that is the mathematical thing called interest mm-hmm. and you do have to continue to pay interest which means you end up paying you know more and more and so as time goes on you have to be constantly increasing your uh, your credit limit you have to be making your payments you know uh, effortlessly uh, and and regularly all the time uh, and your projects have to get bigger Why do you think that my next project is
0: 800 acres? It may be because it has to be.
1: It has to be. It (laughs) has to be. That's what the math says. And so what do I do? Oh, that's too expensive. Like, no, no, no. Give me a break. That's what the math says. Let's go do it. Because what we've done is since I was, you know, 20 years old, I learned how to develop my credit. I learned how to make offers on real estate. Now I learned how to manage my farming business. Now I learned how to manage my off-farm business. Now I learned how to make offers on real estate. Now I learn how to buy real estate, how to make payments. You're learning all along the way. So what would be nice to see is anybody here who's um, just getting started, it would be nice to see in 20 years all of you with, you know, 500 to 1,000 acres of permaculture paradise all paid for free and clear. And, and, and just buy, because, if, because you did I it, if you did it by borrowing money, Congratulations. Yeah.
0: Yeah, um, just so I, I can be clear here, because I am the guy that says you've got to watch debt, especially consumer debt. That is the goal, right? That is the goal is to eventually have these properties pay for themselves.
1: Um, <laughs> you no, know, you kind of rolled something in there. The goal is to have the properties paid for free and clear. Yeah. Uh, statistics show that natural resources and agricultural uh, enterprises don't pay. So. We use, we use the forestry and we use the farming to manage the real estate. The long-term gain is the, is the asset value of the real estate appreciating. And when it comes to paying off the debt, uh, do you, uh, how much money do you think Donald Trump owes? Zillions of dollars, okay? He's gone bankrupt twice in my adult life. How is it that this guy can go bankrupt twice? in my adult life and walk onto a private jet with a Rolex watch and a briefcase that's worth more than my dad ever earned in his life because he figured something out. And all you have to do is study the Donald Trumps of the world, study the Bill Gateses of the world, see what they're doing and how they're doing it, imitate that. And one of the magic ingredients on this, let's say that, you know, Tomorrow, Jack, you've got like five, six thousand, hundred million acres of land. You've got a whole bunch of them paid for behind you, but there's one of them that's holding all the debt. And let's say you all of a sudden get hit by a bus. I know there's a lot of people over here that would love to run you over with a bus, Jack.
0: There probably are.
1: (laughs) But anyways, all of a sudden, what happens to all this debt? Your life insurance policy pays for it.
0: Yeah. I guess
1: what what you have is a mathematical exercise that begins your life at zero equals zero. In the middle of your life, you accumulate this huge pile of assets, real assets, real land where you can live that grows real food, fuel, medicines, fibers, building materials, places for others to come, uh, surplus that you can sell, either wood or berries or nuts or fruit or animals. Uh, and at the end of your life, if it's this big, huge pile of debt, as long as you keep increasing your, your um, life insurance policy, when you go away, the debt goes away, You end your life at zero equals zero, but what you left behind is paradise. And so one of the things that I kind of see is since we know that it's possible in this economy, using debt and leverage and all the evil economics that are out there, we know that it's possible to revegetate this planet in 15 years at a profit, I think that it would be irresponsible for us to not do that.
0: Yeah, and I'll add to that, if that's your plan, make sure you have a good attorney so that your, your, your heirs don't lose everything when you die and And we won 't go deep into that, but there are strategies to do that we 've actually had shows on before uh, where inheritance taxes can wipe out land holdings especially over three million dollars, uh, at least in the current climate and that 's something you 've got to think about there because if you have that level of success that you 're talking about mark it 's very conceivable that on your on your death day you have fifty million dollars worth of property and it would be great if it didn't end up in the hands of somebody that would undo all the beautiful things you've done.
1: Well, actually, actually, what's fascinating about that is is, is part of the strategies is my kids already own two-thirds of what we have right now. Oh. It's already been passed down to them, free and clear. Everybody's like all excited, young people especially. Oh, i got to get land, got to get land, got to get land. Once you get land, you got to get rid of it. you got to get rid of it. you got to get, <laughs> get rid of that stuff because you don't want to own it because if you own it and it gets passed down, they get screwed on taxes just like yeah. you said. yeah. So as soon as we get it, we get rid of it.
0: Huh.
1: And and that's a that's a topic for another eighty five conversations.
0: Yeah, definitely. Let's talk a little bit more about what you're actually growing there. You, <laughs> I, 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 because I've really gotten a lot of information from your book and from some of your talks on chestnuts, but you're, it's not like that's it's not a chestnut farm. It, it's a it's a it's a beautiful polycultured farm that's growing livestock and, and other things. But one of your main crops is also apples. Um, are you growing grafted apples? Or are you growing apples from cedar, Are you doing overgrafts? I mean, what? I mean, you're you're making this awesome cider, um, and you're expanding that operation. So, what what is the mechanics behind the the apple operation?
1: Well, well, we'll get to the apple operation by describing first of all the suite of species that was indicators of oak savanna. You'd have an overstory of oak, chestnut, and beech. They're all in the Fagaceae family. Uh, neither beech nor oak at this time have regular crop yields. They're periodic. They yield heavy yields some years and then none for years. Uh, we Chestnuts have regular yields year after year. There's an understory of cherry and apple, a shrub layer of hazelnut and plum, Cane fruits were blackberries and raspberries. There were grapes climbing all over the whole mess. And then, of course, the prairies, green grass grew all around, all around. And animals, 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 animals. So the apples are a component of a uh, healthy, uh, full complement of species, oak savanna. So uh, how we started planting the apples is we want to find the ones that, you know, survive with stun, sheer, total, utter neglect. So we started with, uh, we had... 239, I believe it was, different grafted um, cultivars. Now, if you go look at the catalogs, you see it's 14 bucks for for a fruit tree. That's not what we did. We bought rootstock at the thousands, so like they're a buck a stem or less. Of course, you buy another thousand at a buck a stem or less, and then you sell them for three bucks to somebody else, and now you just got all your trees paid for. So we planted the rootstock. <clears throat> the rootstock that I used was seedling rootstock. So every single plant was a genetic individual. It's totally different from the other one. We want that genetic diversity to find the magic new plants that are going to show up. Then on top of that, we would graft um, cyanwood sticks from a known variety. And there's a number of places. Uh, Nafex, North American Fruit Explorers, is a great place to get cyanwood wood. Many places have cyanwood exchanges where people just share and, and trade sticks with one another. And so on top of these roots, <clears throat> several thousand roots, which were all seedlings, we grafted 239 different known varieties, and then we treated them with sheer, total, utter neglect. And hmm. if they got diseases and died, good riddance. If they didn't and they survived, fantastic. We would then graft them onto surviving roots or new roots that we had to buy. And... Uh, one of the strategies that I also do is I save um, apple seeds from my favorite apples because now you think we've got a collection of apples that have been pest and disease, almost pest and disease-free for 20 years now, and they thrive with super heavy competition, deer, cattle, pigs, all that kind of whatever. So they're already uh, genetically superior for surviving the site. So I save the seed from those. I know they got pollinated by other um, survivor-type trees. Then you plant those in a nursery bed for a year, cut the stick off, and graft it onto a branch of a mature tree, and suddenly that young one-year-old thing that you grew out of a seed is now it becomes a mature stick, and within two years you'll have flowers on it, and you'll know if that's a decent uh, fruit or not. And then if it is, you can go ahead and graft that onto other roots, and then, of course, save the seed from that, and so on and so on. Uh, woody crops producers, uh, if we really want to continue to help our, our trees to evolve with the planet as it is with the pest and disease and temperatures and rainfall regimes that are actually occurring on the site. We need to always be breeding our own trees constantly. It's just part of what we do. Dairy farmers, they always have some young stock and heifers. They're always bringing in prized bulls or new semen or whatever. That's what we should be doing with our trees, too, instead of buying you know 100 acres of a grafted Macintosh or whatever.
0: Have you come up in, in this process with anywhere? you just ended up with a seed that produced well for you.
1: I have four apples that I've got names for two of them um, that are grown from seed, and hardly anything bothers them. One of them is really, really delicious. Uh, Actually, if if you go to the... uh, uh, Shepherd's Hard Cider website and click on the links to our recent Indiegogo campaign that I finished yesterday, you'll see pictures of this tree that's just loaded with fruit. That's a seedling apple tree. How many of you guys how many of you guys out there have saved your apple seeds and grown them into a variety that's very tasty, is pest and disease free, uh, competes with the sod, requires no fertilizer, fungicide, herbicide, pesticide. How many of you have, have bred four different varieties like that? And why not?
0: I think the why nots the real question. We're we're actually working on that. We're we're developing a lot of stuff from seed. Um,
1: Here, here's one of the I, why nots. Here's one of the why nots. If I may interrupt, I, it's, yeah, it's fun. It's fun interrupting you, Jack.
0: <laughs>
1: it's not easy to do, but it, but it's fun. Um, if it, most of us have heard when we're little is if you save the seed from your apple, yes. it won't it won't come true. So you know it may take a thousand seeds before you get a decent variety. So don't bother to plant your seeds. So many of us has heard that. Part of that statement is a observation, possibly, and part of it is a concept. The observation might be that it might take a 1,000 seeds to get one good variety. The concept is, don't bother to plant your seeds. It's not worth it. They won't come true to type. Well, what if we just changed our concept? And remember, the concept's just our idea. All right, if the observation, it takes a 1,000 seeds to get one good variety, if that's a true observation, then I'll change the concept. How many seeds do you have to plant in order to get four good varieties?
0: 4,000 seeds. I was already now, thinking 10,000.
1: <laughs> which which one, which concept actually created a different planet?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Here's where I was going with that, though, because I think that number is actually astronomically high to the reality. I always was told that, and I was told stupid things, too. Like, if you plant those seeds, it will turn into crab apples, whatever. Right. Um It's just like, no, it doesn't work, never mind, I'm not going to go there. Uh, But I got a hold of a PDF that is a transcription of a PDC given by the guy you got your PDC from, Bill Mollison. And in there he talks about the fact that they grew tons of apple trees at one place where they were just picking up cores off of the road and yanking the pips out of them. And what he said is they may not produce true to type, but most of them produce a decent apple.
1: Of course they're not true to type. You and your brothers and sisters yeah. don't look alike either. It doesn't matter. And, and the thing is, the very first apple seed that I actually grew into a tree was delicious. It was fantastic. So why, why, do we, why do we buy into these concepts that are untested when those concepts are limiting the kind of world that we can live in?
0: The other trees that you're growing on your property are things like plums. So are you doing those much the same way from a, a seed stock and, and saving some of them? Because what you're actually describing is the way a lot of the modern apples came to be with the grafting of one shoot and then the, the how rapidly that will produce if we do that. To, to, so we know. We don't wait 15 years to find out. Right. Was work that was done in in England on the, in the manor houses and all of these gardeners had their own special apples they were developing for the you know master of the property and that was how they did that and they would actually pollinate by hand and they would know the cross and then you'd say well you're going to wait you know 20 years to find it and no that's exactly what they would do they would graft onto an existing tree and in a year or two they'd have a fruit and they'd know the result of it have you been doing that also with plums and cherries and things like that or I mean how far can that work? I mean, where, where do you go? You just go with what's there, or we do, we do this with everything.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know uh, what other variety. Well, I don't know if that, that uh, taking a juvenile stem, putting it on a mature tree. I don't know what other varieties that would really work well on. I've done it with uh, apples and pears. Mm-hmm. Um, most everything else, I'm doing it from seedlings. And then that the first after it survives here as a seedling, seedling, the next test is can you produce fruit or nuts within three years? Okay. If you don't, if you don't produce fruit or nuts in three years, you're out of here. I'm not going (laughs) to wait 50 years to see if you're any good. I need to know in my (laughs) lifetime. I I got three years, man. Okay. Okay. Oh, that's horrible. Now you got to cut them down, and that's work, and that's that's why I just finished a a big huge meal of of um, (laughs) fried shiitake mushrooms. It's terrible. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, and that root, you've left that root in the ground, right? So that that all has a soil-building effect. If we, if you're going to take that approach, then all we have to do is plant more than you want to end up with in the space that you want to end up with it in. And if, if you've got that excessive amount of growth in there, I think it makes killing trees a lot easier psychologically to do.
1: You, you just totally summarize it right there. Is to plant way, 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 way more than you want or need uh, and then remove them through time. One, time. one circumstance that I know of that you really do need to be aware of high density, though, is if you're in an area perhaps like West Texas that uh, really doesn't get enough rainfall to continue soaking down the groundwater, and you'd only have the shallow uh, groundwater that, that's from the rain, if you put in a high-density planting of trees, they can suck it all up and by two-thirds sure. of the way through the summer, then everybody dies. So you got to just be aware in, in the drier climates and sandier sites that you might not want to be as high density.
0: And and your goal with all of this really is to to, to move toward a zero input system, and and that is the where the financial equation shifts. Correct.
1: Yeah, well, that's actually uh, you know as you were asking that question, I was trying to figure the three different directions you might be uh, asking from, but you kind of hit it. Is that a goal, yes, is to have a zero-input system, which for all practical purposes we have. If something requires an input on this property uh, in order to survive, it doesn't survive here. So what ends up happening is you have a zero-cost, for all practical purposes, a zero-cost agricultural technology that, yes, your yield per element, I may get fewer apples per acre, fewer chestnuts per acre, fewer hazels per acre than a hazelnut grower or an apple grower or a chestnut grower. Uh, but at what cost? If it didn't cost me anything, all I got to do is, is uh, prepare for harvest and harvest. Everybody shares that cost. I don't share any of the other costs. No fungal sprays, you know. No fertilizer amendments, you know. No bark paste and paintings and you know bird scares. None of that. There's zero zero input. Actually, our inputs. We strive to get our inputs accomplished um, by other elements in the system. <clears throat> for example, in our apples uh weed control underneath the trees instead of mulching or uh or herbicide or tillage we use um comfrey and daffodils that have secondary markets uh, I used to sell a lot of comfrey to medicinal herb company and I used to sell a lot of daffodils as cut flowers um I don't sell that stuff anymore but it's still there and it's still accomplishing weed control under the trees
0: so and there's still a market for it you're not doing it probably because you have more profitable ways to spend your labor
1: i I got other other things to do at that time of year, exactly right. And then then for uh, weed control, it's called cattle. They come in and they graze. That's also called fertilizer input because they're fertilizing things. Then in June, uh, the pigs move through the orchard and they gobble up the June drop, which are the first trees that are infected with pests, or the first fruit that are infected with pests. So the pigs come through, they gain a little weight, and they do the insect control because they get rid of that first flush of insect pests. Um, what the cattle also do is they'll remove the lower branches of your apple trees. They make the apple trees look kind of you know weird and harried, but it's no big deal. The trees are fine. By removing the lower branches, where there's a gap between the lower branches and the ground, uh, you've just short-circuited the fungal cycle. So fungal spores don't splash up off the ground in a rain and hit your leaf and then climb all over your apple tree. So our inputs are being taken care of by our uh, other profit centers. The one that's not a profit center uh, is the secondary insect control, which is taken care of by bluebirds, eastern kingbirds, eastern phoebes, bats, tree frogs, toads. By having a rich, abundant habitat <coughs> habitat with breeding sites and, and hiding sites for all those critters, they're doing my pest control for me. Apples, I mean, um, uh, amphibians are, are a big one. Why on earth would I spray any kind of insect control on my apple trees, whether it's a chemical or organic spray, when I know that amphibians get half of their oxygen right through their skin? So even if I'm spraying an uh, organic-approved spray on my apple trees, I'm making my frogs and my toads sick. So in order to get insect control, we're destroying insect control. So we have pests and diseases, don't get me wrong. We have all the pests and diseases you could possibly want but that's how we know that the trees that are there are resistant because they're not getting killed by the pests and diseases.
0: I'll I'll tell you, my my background is really in herpetology, and the first thing I'll look at in an ecosystem to determine its health is the amphibians. They are the canary in the coal mine of an ecosystem. They tell you immediately whether that system's healthy or not, Um, or at least whether that system's, I wouldn't say healthy or not, toxic or not because they are the most affected by any of the toxins that we as human beings tend to introduce into a landscape.
1: Well, when you come out here and visit sometime, you'll see that we have a lot of canaries in our coal mine. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, we the, the the farmer working in West Virginia, we just put in two dams and they're already just loaded with frogs and we're like that's that's really a great sign. Um when when you look at the the future here And you seem very motivated to encourage people to get out and get something done. Where do you see the biggest initial headway being made? Is it going to be in converting farms or is it going to be more along the lines of creating farms? I mean, I guess another way to phrase this, if I said, here's two pieces of property in front of you, one has been conventionally farmed or used to be conventionally farmed, has been abandoned. This one here has never been farmed. No one ever thought it was worth farming. And they were – kind of the same biome and what have you, is there a preference that you would have?
1: Well, my personal preference would be to convert uh, something that's already been an ag, because if it's already been participating in the food system, we want to continue participating in the food system and yet do it a radically different way, whereas something that's been abandoned and it's growing back or has never been farmed before, it's already performing natural ecosystem functions. And so what we want to do is go to land that's degraded, and not performing those functions, get it to perform those functions while simultaneously harvesting our crops from it. That's a that's a greater uh, greater bang for your ecological buck. Take take somebody somebody who's doing you know uh, moldboard plow tillage with, with uh, conventional chemical uh, herbicides and fertilizers and all that. They're burning up their organic matter every single year. The soil is degrading; it's getting more and more compacted. Uh, it's every time you disturb the soil, you plow, or you till. You're releasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. That's a net ecological negative. Yes, it provides a couple of kernels of corn to put in our high fructose corn syrup. Yippee, I'm happy. Uh, if we can take that and turn it into a three-dimensional, fully functional savanna ecosystem, that's a bigger change than going into an abandoned crop field that's already grown back to trees and shrubs and bushes. That's a bigger ecological turnaround, and that's, that's what I'd like to see more of.
0: I've always thought that one of the biggest things we need to do is convince people that aren't the 66-year-old guy that's going to sell his farm in five years anyway, that are actively farming to give this stuff a shot. And you seem to do a pretty good job of taking those people in your consulting as far as they're willing to go at the time that they're willing to go there. I think there's a lot of that right now. And What I'm hearing from right now out of my own audience is more and more young people, people that are in their 20s. Dad still owns the farm. Dad's been doing corn and beans for a 1,000 years. Um, they've got five hundred, a thousand acres. A lot of these people, and 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 are very, very resistant to change. And I think kids have a problem with something Dave Ramsey calls powdered butt syndrome. You can't possibly know better than me if I've ever put powder on your butt and changed your diaper. But <laughs> h- how do you reach that person and say, hey, you know what? You got a thousand acres here. We don't have to do it all. Let's just start somewhere. How how do you get across to that person? I mean, one of the things I've Thought of doing is telling people what you need to do is find out what topsoil costs uh, in that in that market and look at their erosion and, and hand them a bill for all the topsoil if they had to replace it they lost this year and so here's a bill you never saw. Uh, but is there other ways that you've been maybe more because that's kind of in your face, like yeah. not that you're in your face or anything, Mark, but you know.
1: Well, well, not not to certain audiences. And if you think that that's probably the largest demographic that right now that I work with are people that. They may not have thought that they were going to get into farming, but they grew on the farm, grew up on the farm, and all of a sudden they're going to get stuck with it. And you're going to have to deal with this 500,000 acres when dad goes, when grandpa goes. So you better get started soon. And the easiest way to convince dad to let you have a piece of it is to go right to the National Agroforestry Center and get all of the information on alley cropping and silvopasture and say, look, dad, here are USDA programs, government programs, because you hate anybody getting free government handouts except for farmers. Um, (laughs) Go right to the National Agroforestry Center, and they will cost-share you to do silvopasture systems. They will cost-share you to put in woody riparian buffers. They'll cost-share you to put in alley cropping systems. And when dad or grandpa sees that all you're talking about is putting a row of trees between the corn and the soybeans, he never has to change equipment. Uh, Okay, so he has to adjust to herbicides that he used to use 10 years ago instead of last year. Um, That's totally doable. And then if you start putting numbers to it, go to the University of Missouri-Columbia, uh, the School of Agroforestry, and they have a whole entire department that's, uh, that's based on economics. <clears throat> and you work up a couple of simple little spreadsheets and say, look, Dad, if we go ahead and plant that one row of walnuts, for example, between the corn and the beans, in 20 years it's going to be producing more money than the uh, corn or the beans will. And here's the numbers with 30 years' worth of data collection track records to prove it. And you'll never have any decreased yields in your corn. Let me give it a shot, Dad. That's the, that's the best, biggest convincer that I've seen.
0: So it's, it's, it's putting in the, 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 the tree rows just as an – and I guess the government's, the government's reason to back that is it does reduce erosion and create habitat.
1: It does. And, and, and the thing is that what can convince Dad, for one, it's, you know, it's, it's a government program, USDA stamp of approval, and mm-hmm. two, it's simple. It's easy to understand a row of trees between my corn and my beans. It's really easy to understand. Anybody can get that.
0: And everybody used to do that. I mean, I grew up hunting the fields of Pennsylvania. There were, when I was, I'm not that old, man. I mean, I'm in my 40s. I I don't remember a single farm without tree lines. Not one. I, I don't know what, I really don't know what happened. Maybe it's just that. It's a different way that they farm in the northeast and the midwest, and and maybe it was always that way in the midwest, but I remember every farm that we had permission to hunt on having tree lines and riparian areas, every single one of them.
1: Yeah, part of it is getting paid for uh, your corn base. Every acre that you have that can grow corn on it, you get paid Mm for it. That's that's part of it, and the the programs basically just support, you know, going commodity crops wall to wall, so then you buy the neighbor's farm, Uh, Because they go bankrupt or the kids move to town or whatever, then you go ahead and tear out the fence lines between you. It makes perfect sense based on the politics uh, and who's making the payments. It really does.
0: Uh, The other thing I want to ask you about what had you on here this is how I became hooked on Mark Shepard and and your methodologies and your mindset. I read an article in Acres Magazine. And I think it was an interview with you. I don't think it was an article you wrote. I think some one of the authors there interviewed you, and they talked. They were talking to you about your internship program, and you said the first thing an intern gets here is a Schedule F. (laughs) And could you talk about how you do that? And I know exactly why you do it, but but explain to the audience why you do that. Because I thought to myself, this is a guy who's taking his interns and he's turning them into farm business people right from day one.
1: Right, what I'm not turning them into, I'm not turning them into a chemical bag, agribusiness, big boys with, you know, you know, $55 million articulated tractors and nine-wheel drive pickup trucks and all that kind of stuff. We're, we, what we're doing is teaching uh, people or at least allowing them the opportunity to learn how to manage your own farm business. Uh, and kind of part of where, where it came from for me is I was part of a crowd when I was in my 20s who would just rail against... How horrible these mean oppressor white farmer guys were when they, they would hire, um, a very inexpensive Jamaican or Mexican workers that had no green cards. They were only up temporarily seasonally. They, they paid them way substandard minimum wage. This is, this is horribly, uh, unfair. This is an economic, it's almost economic slavery. So I really railed against that. And so then I immediately got involved in the whole, uh, organic movement. And lo and behold, here's all these young 20 year olds. Worst
0: offenders, right?
1: Yeah, we're, we're complaining about, you know, these big bad farmers hiring cheap Mexican laborers. Well, dang, at least the Mexican laborers were getting paid. We were interns, and we're pulling radishes out of Farmer Joe's field. We're pulling weeds out of the radishes in Farmer Joe's field. We're doing the slave work that he doesn't want to do. Uh, he's in there playing the numbers game, trying to figure out how to make the next payment, pay the electric bill, blah, blah, blah. And we're doing all his work for free. That's worse than you know immigrant labor, underpaid immigrant labor, and so then I I decided if I'm going to do Earth care and, and people care in an equitable economic system, we have to pay the workers their actual true value because they actually use their minds, they use their bodies, and then you kind of pencil it out on a produce operation, you realize it's the sale price of the produce going into the marketplace. We can't sell it for the current market rate if we're also paying, you know, 10 bucks an hour for people to do it. So all of a sudden you realize that the whole agricultural game is rigged. It's rigged against, uh, you know, the small-scale freeholder making a, a reasonable livelihood and paying his workers well. So how do we get around that? How do we get some help on the farm? And yet how do we learn the real lessons? How do we teach people the real lessons of running a farm? It's all about managing... Your farm economics. Even if you have a 10 by 10 garden patch in your backyard, if you keep track of every seed that you buy, every input that you haul in, how much time it took you to do it, uh, then when you harvest the products, how many pounds of everything that you did, or how many bunches of this that you harvested, uh, then you go to the co-op or you know a, a grocery store and write down a price per pound for the product that you produced. What you've just done is you've described economically. Your actual activity. You actually did buy seeds and inputs. You actually did labor. You actually did produce these crops, and they actually did have a market value. And as your farmer, IRS Schedule F, that farmer sold it to a customer. And in the case of the 10 by 10 garden patch out backside, you know, that IRS Schedule F farm now sold it to the customer, which happened to be you, and you put it in the refrigerator. Now, now, that right there, it's basically learning how to track an actual economic uh, activity that occurred. The function of farming actually occurred. Somebody grew that food. The actual transfer of ownership did occur. IRS Schedule F transferred it to you, Jack, the individual. And so the discipline of learning how to keep track of that is the real skill that you need in order to run a, a farm and, and not go belly up.
0: And, and administratively when i'm looking to do things in the future as i as i have a couple years of a schedule f behind me that changes my status when it comes to looking for things like loans in the agricultural market as well um you know when i was looking to buy a property here a couple of the properties we looked at were zoned agricultural, and they ended up not working out due to location, because uh, was, this was more about living near my wife's family than getting what I wanted, um, but,
1: but <laughs> Come on, you
0: want it's it was, it was very much kind of balanced what both of us wanted, but anyway, these problems are just a little bit too far away, um, but as we were looking at, like one of them were like, yeah, this might work, and like, oh, no, well, you won't be getting an FHA loan for that property. You're going to have to go to a company that doesn't agricultural loans and it's a different process for uh, for getting a loan on an ag property and I mean it was something that I had really never considered because at that point I had never looked at buying an agricultural property so learning this whole business segment and all of these things but also creating this track record of I farmed for a living even if you didn't make a lot of money doing it I think it's very important for that person when they leave your farm and go out and say I want to establish a farm somewhere else
1: well, and so you've, you've kind of taken it around full circle, which is really great because one of the magic numbers is three years worth of filing an IRS Schedule F. So, you know, anybody who grows a garden right now, uh, set up a, a LLC, know limited liability company, get its own EIN, which is its company's social security number, and of course we know that the Supreme Court of the United States says that that social security number is a distinct, separate individual and has all the individual rights under the Constitution as you do. So now that IRS Schedule F, if it has three years' worth of tax returns showing that it actually performed its function, it planted seed and grew crops and harvested them or, you know, raised guinea pigs and sold them to the kid down the road who clubbed them on Halloween or whatever he did with it. Um, With three years of track record of filing your Schedule F on your taxes, you now qualify for agricultural loans that others won't. And I think what's more important is you've got the discipline of keeping track of your enterprise because now the lender knows, like, oh, yeah, at least he's taking care of his – he's putting his receipts in a shoebox and uh, keeping track of stuff on an Excel spreadsheet. If that's all you do, you're all of a sudden way ahead of the pack, and you'll be able to get land.
0: Just so I understand this, because it sounds like this is what you're saying. If someone owned a couple-acre homestead and they put in, you know, what we would consider about the size of a market garden – even if they're not taking that product to market, they're using it for their own use, they can effectively sell it to themselves?
1: Well, no. No, they don't sell it to themselves. Okay. A IRS Schedule F farm, a separate okay. individual under the Constitution of the United States I of got America, you. grew farm products. Okay. And then it sold it to a customer, which happens to be Jack Spierko.
0: But I also own the corporation that sold it to me.
1: I probably own some shares of Microsoft, and I also use a Microsoft computer. I got you. And I got separate. you. And separate. And, but the thing is, is, is we have to be absolutely clear in this, because if you all of a sudden say that you grow it and you sold it to yourself, that's called fraud. I got
0: you. That's, I got that, you.
1: That, and we have to be clear in our thinking and clear in our actions and clear in our our But, our but,
0: but, but Spirico Farms, Inc., LLC, Texas, grew 400 pounds of apples and sold them to Jack Spirico. That that can be scheduled F.
1: That's legit. And also think wow. about this too: is you don't know, the farm. We have got to go all the way back to the beginning of the conversation. Farm is not the real estate. The farm is the function. It is the activity of growing and selling agri- agricultural products. So when you think about so many farmers around us, you're renting land from here, renting land from there. Let's say. Yep. You know, Jack Spearco Farms, Inc. is located in Texas this year. Then Jack Spierko Farms, Inc. moves to Virginia. Then Jack Spierko Farms moves to Boulder. Then all of a sudden, finally, Jack Spierko himself finds a piece of real estate that he wants to invest in, and then he rents that land to Jack Spearco Farms, Inc., and now the two of them reside on the same piece of property.
0: Yeah, that, that that makes perfect sense. I mean, obviously, the farm... but I don't know if I've ever heard of anybody put it that way. The farm is not the land. The farm is the function, because... Most farmers in America today, I would say, especially in, if you're talking about the vegetable world, uh, not the big giant row crops, so I think there's a lot of them in that too though, don't own their land. They're leasing the land. So one party owns the land, the other party performs the function as a business.
1: Right, and, and look at the IRS Schedule F tax form. Nowhere on that. Does it say, oh, you know, the the land that you own? It it asks for any interest that you're paying on real estate, and then it asks for any rent that you might be paying. And think about that, actually. Paying rent is 100% write-off every single year. Paying a mortgage, you only get to write off the interest on the mortgage. So one of the biggest uh, uh, problems why farmers get bit in the butt is when they think in their mind that their IRS Schedule F function is going to pay for everything including the land. IRS Schedule F should pay for itself and be profitable within itself. The real estate, in part, gets paid by rents from the farm, but it can also rent to another business. It can rent its uh, residential uh, structures to people who live in the residential structure. So when you're buying the land, uh, don't think that IRS Schedule F is going to pay for everything. That will get you in trouble.
0: That makes sense. How does it relate to this concept? This is a question from a listener. You have these, Salatin calls them fiefdoms. You have these, these business units on your farm and some of them are run by people other than yourself. When you do that, do they, do they action, act as a function of your farm operation or do they, are they set up as their own entity with a relationship with you?
1: They're, they're set up as their own entity. They're their own little business and they rent uh, real estate from the real estate investment company that owns the land.
0: That I think right there is something people need to pay attention to. The real estate investment company that owns the land. That's 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 another piece of the structure. I, I think you, you're you're into a level of asset protection there as well. It's,
1: well, hello. <laughs> Aren't we in a hostile world, and isn't uh, Absolutely. real estate very, very valuable? And especially if we're going to cr- increase its asset value to actually produce real food, fuel, medicine, fibers, ecosystem services, clean water, clean air, create soil—that's uh, a valuable asset that we want to protect. Absolutely. And so, yeah. so the real estate investment company owns the land. Uh, people rent the residential structure from the real estate investment company.
0: Does that include land you? Do you rent your own house from? the real estate investment company that you also maybe own?
1: It's not my house. Okay. the, owns of the real estate investment company.
0: <laughs> Do you rent the house you live in from the real estate invest- investment company that you have ownership in?
1: I, I rent this house. My wife and I rent this house from the real estate investment company that owns the land and the buildings, yes. Wow. The cider company rents that facility from the real estate investment company that owns the buildings and land the hazelnut processing company rents from the produce company rents from the each individual farmer rents from uh, the most people that we've or most enterprises that we've had stacked here were eight different enterprises at one point in time what's
0: been your, yeah what's been your biggest success story in that which which one has done the the most uh in, in as far as maybe exceeding your expectations of it when it started
1: <laughs> Well. It's kind of a two-part answer there, but really the, the, biggest, um, the biggest success story is, is viewing the whole uh, ecosystem of enterprises as a whole, not focusing on the, the little bit pieces. The farm, you know, New Forest Farm, IRS Schedule F with my EIN, whatever, that's a bit player. What's really important is managing the whole entire system which includes the residential, the, you know, the, the processing, et cetera. That, I think, is, is, the, uh, is the biggest success story, is managing as a whole system of related and interrelated enterprises. The, the second part of that, which maybe everybody can aspire to it. I didn't necessarily aspire to it. Um, you know, I'd, I'd been dreaming about doing this kind of agriculture since I was 18. I had no idea that I'd like end up writing books and go all around the world talking and speaking and helping farmers. So I don't think you should really bank on becoming a Mark Shepard, but, hey, if you can, go for it, man.
0: I'm going to pin you down. I want to know of the farm activities. Uh, Like you said, you had eight function stacks there at once. Of those, what was the one that maybe did really well that maybe you thought, I'm not sure about this one when you started out?
1: Well, they're they're all different through the years as time goes on, as each enterprise develops and, and stagnates or you have good years and bad years. The probably the most reliable the most reliable fruit time is produce. I can bank on between two and four thousand dollars an acre wholesale, hmm. and so if I have a certain amount of payments, I can just go put in that much produce. I know we can sell it. It's sold. It's it's easy. It's bank. It's not necessarily the easiest to get because it's very labor intensive, and it's not necessarily the highest dollar amount. Uh, probably the highest dollar amount of the percentages would be the tree and shrub nursery sales. Um, but it's very erratic and it will have high sales one year and low sales another year you get one client that buys out everything that you got and you do really well and other years you know you're just pulling your teeth out trying to sell trees so that's more erratic with higher highs um, but more catastrophic lows uh and the uh there is no single enterprise uh in this constellation of enterprises no single enterprise can carry the whole thing
0: yeah that that instead, I fully understand.
1: Instead of making a hundred bucks in one place, you're making a $1 dollar in a hundred places.
0: Got you. When you're cutting up these enterprises, how 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 net how uh, how thin do we cut? I guess is what I'm saying. So I know you raise, for instance, pigs and cattle. Are those two separate enterprises? or Are they under a single enterprise of livestock?
1: If if I am the the manager of that enterprise it' would be, all be under my roof but when others come on board and they want to do livestock I'll let them do their livestock and then just that year you know my farming enterprise doesn't do livestock this year my farming enterprise is not doing cattle okay it's no big deal you know I might next year who knows it so one of
0: cattle. your one of your people that's coming there to work with you is, is running the cattle operation this year as a as a fight them which I guess to, to rob Joe's world Joe's world right. Joel's word
1: <laughs> I know, you call them fiefdoms, or he calls them fiefdoms, and you called mine units, I think that's very interesting. <laughs> I
0: I I, I, I think I called field. yours business units, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what, the reason I use that term for years is I've never heard you say fiefdom, and, and in running businesses over the years, that's what I've always called the individual enterprises within a business as a business unit, so I might have yeah. uh, a company, I used to own a company that did web technology development, and Design was a business unit in that company, and programming and development was a separate unit. They were managed independently. So that's just my terminology as right. business unit. was—I never heard that until I was at Voices and heard him say that, and I'm like, that—that that made sense to me as a business person. I looked at that yeah. and said, well, that's how I'd manage a farm.
1: And, and then you know, part of what happens too is through time, things change and morph. And once upon a time, you know, Forest Agriculture Enterprises was was my catch-all for anything off the farm that I do, from tree and shrub sales to speaking engagements to consultations. Uh, I also started to invent uh, equipment, so I was doing R&D. I've got uh, a couple patents to my name. So then it's like, well, at this stage of the game, now I've got a book and DVDs that are out there. Now there needs to be an entity that manages like the brand of Mark Shepard. There needs to be an entity that's only doing the uh, farm consults and the education. There's got to be an entity that's doing the trees and shrubs. So as time goes on, you know, these entities change and, and evolve into whatever the next thing is.
0: Makes perfect sense. Um, I do have a few more listener questions if you've got the time. I don't want to do. yep, keep sure. you longer. Um one of the, one of the, uh, the, uh, listeners has asked about building swales, and now I'm trying to find the question. Yeah. Uh, in your book, Restoration Agriculture, you show photographs of making swales, mini-swales, question mark, with a single bottom moldboard plow. In what circumstances, this is an effective method of making sails. What would the circumstance be that would cause you to bring in an excavator or other heavy piece of equipment?
1: Well, I don't like using the excavator, the backhoe, armhole thing because the bottom, the action end of the digger is not referenced at a set point from ground level. I like using a bulldozer or plows, something where the wheels of the vehicle moving this tool and the bottom of the cutting edge are at a set distance one from another. That way you can keep things uh, real predictable. Now, what determines the... The size of any water collection Mm -hmm. swale is the catchment area leading to that swale, the soil types, how permeable that soil is, and the types of rainfall you get. Do you get, you know, mild little misty rains or do you get catastrophic six six inch gully washers? You have to know the catchment area that's going to feed that swale, how much rain you could expect in a, you know, 500 year flood event, And you have to design your swales and any pocket ponds, ridge ponds, uh, drive-through ponds to be able to swallow that maximum rainfall event. So if you're going to have uh, a one-bottom plow, for example, you would, uh, in a fairly heavy rainfall area, want to have more swales closer together. If you're going to have fewer swales wider apart, they need to be larger and deeper. That's all rolling sliding calculus. It's called civil engineering.
0: Okay, next one from the audience. Uh, My question for Mark is, what spacing do you put between shrubs and berries in relation to the trees? Are they two to five feet apart at the drip line, or do they get shaded out eventually and get uh, moved out with succession? Also, I would like to know, Texas, would elderberries work in place of currants? Uh, because apparently currants don't grow down here, but I'm growing currants down here, just for the record.
1: I I would, uh, both currants and elderberries will want a little bit higher moisture, so either heavier organic matter, uh, you know, periodic irrigation, or, you know, in a swale, uh, or river bottom, riparian zone, they want more water. And then the the spatial arrangements of these plants is absolutely, totally up to the designer. If you want to have... 50 species in the same row, cram them in. Uh, they'll all sort each, each other out by height. The short plants will only grow short. The tall plants will go tall. And if it's in a single row and you're mowing on either side or, or doing whatever, grazing on either side, they'll all get sunlight from the sides. They'll all get water from going out to the side. And they don't get shaded out. Um, if you're going to design things so that you do create a deep shade, uh, like with my currents, I have them right in the row with chestnut trees underneath the uh, almost closed chestnut canopy. Um, so, so the the design variabilities are endless. It's all up to you, your choice. What and my recommendations would be to design all of your spacings based on uh, any equipment that you're going to use for maintenance, whether it's a you know push hand-powered reel type mower, a weed eater, uh, horses, or or a 55 million-foot-wide tractor, design your alley widths based on your equipment, and plant your plantings accordingly. If you're going to mechanically harvest, uh, you're going to have a different configuration than if you're going to hand harvest. One of the places that's doing a lot of uh, research with different polyculture configurations is the Woody Perennial Polyculture Research Site at the University of Urbana, Illinois, that I helped set up. And uh, one of the things they're going to be doing through the years is You know, which configurations give us the best plant growth, which configurations get us the total uh, calorie yields, which configurations give us the total dollar yields, which configurations give us, you know, the most nutrition per acre. And that's all stuff that, that, uh, you know, we have to learn in the future. But us as growers, it's up to us. Just design it how we want. That's the thing about great permaculture systems is you can use the same species as I do and your system will look totally different.
0: Absolutely. Um, And just for the record, I'm not recommending that people try to grow currants commercially in Texas. But if you want to do it, here's the formula that I have determined. You want about three hours of morning eastern sun, and you want total shade after that. And Mark, you're right. You have to have a lot of moisture. I planted them everywhere, and everywhere they didn't die, that's where it was. Um, On that note, there are a lot of people that follow you, Mark, that They're not going to own a 100-acre farm ever. That's not their goal in life. There's a lot of people that follow you that are homesteaders, have a piece of property similar to the size that I do. What advice do you have for those people that just say, I'm not going to be a farmer, but I want to do this on a small scale on a homestead-sized property as something that's beautiful for my family and to support my family, with some food and with some recreation. How might that person adapt some of the things you've learned on a broad acre scale down to a smaller scale?
1: If if it's the homestead scale, you know, a few acres or more, I'd recommend, you know, uh, thinking about it at the farm scale. Okay. Uh, If the first tool that you go out and grab in the morning is a hoe, you're a gardener, and that's okay. That's just your scale. It's not a put down or anything. That's your scale. If the first thing you do in the morning is hop on a tractor, that's farm scale. Now, homesteader, the homesteader scale, three to 15 acres or whatever, is the perfect size for a good, happy, healthy family life. But it's the it's the size that will break you if you try to be a gardener at the homestead scale. Um, it'll also try to it'll also break you financially if you try to make it economically successful as a as a farm so it's right at that cusp it's a perfect human size i think you know for for a good healthy happy life um but if you try to do it uh with gardening techniques it'll kill you it really will you got got to think of it as a farm so get lightly mechanized even though you know that you know this tractor that i bought it does a lot of things and it's expensive every time i run it I can't believe I spent so much on it. It will really, really, really save your life. Get a nice little small 30, you know, 30, 40-horse tractor or whatever. You can get an old one if you want, and you get a brand new one. That, I think, will help you is to think as a farm. One of the things for both the, the you know, the suburban and or the, uh, you know, true garden scale, is, and and even at the homestead scale, we don't know what, uh critical mass of biology that we need in order to get effective ecological processes happening, especially with pest and disease uh, populations. We know ecologically that uh, pests and diseases, all animals and plants have certain life cycles uh, and certain critical masses to get to the point where, say, cucumber beetles. If you have five squash plants, you will never be able to raise enough cucumber beetles in order to bring in the things that eat cucumber beetles or the diseases that infect
0: cucumbers. Absolutely.
1: What will happen is the cucumbers will eat all your squash, then they'll move somewhere else. So, at the smaller scale is where you do risk catastrophic loss if you try to do stun. Yep. So, when you're at the homestead scale or the garden scale, uh, if you do have pest or disease outbreaks, it's at that scale, I'd say, you know what? Mm, let's do a thoughtful consideration here. Maybe we will use some kind of uh, input to, you know, reduce this animal population. The, ant- the inputs that I would prefer to use is creating habitat for uh, predators of that pest. And so, you know, bluebird boxes, bat houses, toad homes, little pocket ponds here and there just for insect control. Um, but just understand that, that at a smaller scale we may not have uh, ecological processes in place for us
0: yeah that's really important I I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up the way I've tried to always explain that is out on the Serengeti there's there's lions and they eat zebras and wildebeests and impalas etc and there has to be a certain number of those prey animals for the predator to be able to survive and if there's not enough of them because we've killed them all or they just don't exist or it's just too small an area the predator leaves and to think that that equation is going to change just because we've gone from a lion to a wheelbug is ridiculous. It's going to work exactly the same way. If there's not enough prey for me to hang out as a wheelbug or a mantis or a spider or a frog or a bat, I'm going to go where the prey is. That's right. And and yeah. the the thing with the squash is is I get people all the time. The squash bugs and the vine borers are the the, the the bane of the existence, especially for the southern gardener. And the answer is always: you have to plant a hell of a lot more of it. That, that's, right. that's the only answer there is. Because I don't know anything that eats a squash bug, Mark. I, I think I the don't only know thing
1: either. Numbers. But it, I don't know either. But after a while, they they their populations go down. I don't know who's taking them down.
0: I don't yeah. either. I, I saw a, a chicken eat one one time and she made a sound that was if you, if it was in english it would have been oh no 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 and ran away <laughs> so whatever they taste like it's not good um but what i've noticed is right where a gardener can't grow zucchini down the road there's a farm growing tons of zucchini
1: right yeah, Which, with every with every pest and every disease every plant every animal the scale is different the number of individuals of cherry trees that you might need in order to grow a decent amount, you know, pest and disease-free may be, you know, in the thousands or tens of thousands. In, in uh, squash, it might be, you know, five to ten acres. I, I don't know what the numbers are. And depending on the organism, it might be more or less area. And those are the things that we just don't know yet as human beings. We need to learn these things.
0: So, just as we as we wrap up here, what would be the biggest advice you would give to a person? And I think you've probably given tons of it. Maybe you can just sum it up here at the end. That says, "This is what I want to do. I do want to take this to a farm scale level, and and, and it just they don't have dad that or, or grandpa that's going to hand the farm down. Uh, they're the the young optimistic kid that took a PDC and thought the world was going to change in a year, and it didn't. And now they've realized they've got to get something done." And they've got to be part of the solution. And now they're saying, I, I don't have any money, but I've got a vision, and this is what I want to do.
1: Right. Well, uh, you can start by coming to uh, one or more of my restoration agriculture workshops. There's a schedule posted on my Mark Shepard, Restoration Agriculture Facebook page, another one on uh, forestag.com website. And then another one would be to do your best to attend the Permaculture Voices Conference uh, in coming up in March in California. And uh, part of what we will be doing there is we'll be doing trainings specifically for that type of person who has a real strong interest in getting into farm-scale permaculture and doesn't necessarily have all the tools in place. We're going to be training on the, on the credit building, real estate buying, and we're also partnering with, with in people who have money that, that want to invest in land, but they want people who are actually going to really farm it and not just go play on it. And then my third piece of advice, I guess, in closing... Is that uh, the whole permaculture methodology uh, is one of the most brilliant synthesizing methodologies that I've seen anywhere. There are so many, so many good things going on in you know within the, the milieu of permaculture. However, the time for triviality is over. The time for playing around with cute little ideas and mud, mud ovens and rock piles is over. It is time to actually create food, fuel, medicines, and fibers for humanity. And there are 7 billion-plus people on the face of this planet. Ecological systems are in free fall all across this globe. We need people to stand up to take on on whatever the backpack is and go out here and start putting trees in the ground at scale in ecological mimic systems, and we can revegetate the planet in 15 years at a profit if we do it right. There's no more time to fool around.
0: You know, as as we close here, this is the Survival Podcast. So as you might imagine, we attract a large number of listeners who are concerned with economic issues, social issues, and and the concept of uh, global or national collapse. Can you, at the end here, tell people what has happened to every civilization that's ever been built on annual agriculture?
1: Every every society that has based its diet on annual plants, that's the, the grains and legumes for their staple food crops, that's rice, uh, corn, beans, peas, wheat, millet, barley, any and every society that has based its staple food crops diet on annual plants has ended in collapse. What, In order to grow an annual plant, you have to destroy a three-dimensional perennial ecosystem and expose the bare soil. The bare soil washes away in the wind, in the water, the nutrients leach out of it. Uh, it, all the organic matter oxidizes, nutrients go away, your crop yields go lower and lower and lower and lower, you've destroyed your resource base, and you eventually end up in starvation and system collapse. And this culture right now uh, is totally on that path. And here's, here's a challenge that I'd like to uh, put out to all your listeners here. I'd like you guys to take a 30-day challenge. And for the next 30 days, don't eat any annual grains or legumes. These are, you know, bread, pasta, uh, and then, of course, rice, beans, and all that. Uh, There are so few nutrients, really. There are so few nutrients in annual grains. It's basically starch, a bunch of carbohydrates, some B vitamins. Um, There's no real food in it. It's just energy and stuffing to fill an empty belly. So start eating perennial foods, grass-fed meats if you're a meat eater. If you're not a meat eater, eat nuts. Uh, tree nuts, do it for 30 days. And if you can't do that for 30 days, you are addicted to annual grains. And if you say, no, 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 this is, they're not addictive substances. I'm not addicted to annual grains. Well, you're in the first stage of addiction and that's called denial.
0: Denial. Yeah. You're addicted to sugar. That's what you're addicted to.
1: And think about your pancreas as this little teeny tiny thing. That's that's about the proportions of, of carbohydrates that we need to consume. Your liver, it's almost a third of your gut cavity. That's used to digest meat and protein, uh, fat. Uh, I think if we get got this big, humongous liver, we should be eating more meat and fat and a lot less um, sugars.
0: Yeah. I, you're, you're, you're preaching a little bit to the choir there, Mark. Um, <laughs> I weighed about four years ago about 290 pounds. And I got on – and it was from just living too high on the hog in corporate America and entertaining clients and 17-course meals and everything else that goes with that and stress and eating way too much of the carbohydrates. And I got on a paleo lifestyle back then, and I'm 205 right now, uh, and I've been 205 for years, for at least two years now. Uh, and maintain that weight, and I'm not a guy that's going to be on the cover of GQ, but I'm sure it's hell not 290 plus pounds anymore. Now, and now also, there's,
1: there, there's a legitimate danger with that, in, in the vegetarians and the militant vegan crowd are correct in that if we shift our diet to eating more meat, the way meat is currently raised right now, it's even yep. more ecologically catastrophic, because yep. those animals are eating stuff that people could eat, Yep. and so we need to eat animals that are eating things that we can't eat. We need to eat Cows that are eating grass and sticks, and we can't eat grass
0: and sticks. Well, it is what they're supposed to eat. Right. Cows are supposed to eat grass. It's, it's shocking, but it's true that cows are supposed <laughs> to eat grass, right? That, that's, that they're not supposed to eat wheat or corn. That's not right. what they're designed to consume. That's why they have three stomachs.
1: All right, and then think about the, uh, think about the uh, annual grains and legumes. The organisms that are adapted to eat grains have two organs that we don't have. It's called a crop and a gizzard. <laughs> Yeah, those are birds. We yeah. eat the birds. They eat the grains.
0: That was you said that in uh, at voices, and I I just laughed because I'm like you said you said something just that it was kind of almost a smartass remark the way you said it. You said you don't have a crop, so you shouldn't be eating those things. <laughs> and, and I thought, yeah, this this guy and I, I think are coming from the same school of thought, definitely. And I think that your style of agriculture produces meat almost as a byproduct of the, the vegetative crop. Like yeah. that pig and that cow and that chicken are necessary elements so that you don't have to do all the work and as you know, it's winter. Do I feed this animal all year or do I eat him? I think right. I'll eat him.
1: Yeah, and, and see, that goes back again to the, all the enterprises. And, and many people also make the mistakes like, oh, I'm going to be a cattleman. I'm going to be in the cattle business. Well, that's once again, that's short-term, narrow-minded thinking. You need to look at the whole entire system. Cattle are one of the management tools within this system, so yes, they're almost a byproduct. Meat is almost a byproduct of, of having a healthy ecosystem like this.
0: Do you think we could produce as much meat as we do now using a restoration agriculture model on a national scale?
1: You know, I don't know. I've never bothered to sit down and put numbers to that. I do know, though, that um, uh, some guys, researchers out of uh, University of Illinois, uh, did some. They did, like, these 10-meter random plot samples across my farm. And at this one particular uh, plot that they got to, it outproduced corn uh, in calories per acre by 30%. I was hoping for more, but it was 30% more calories per acre than corn. And the difference was that the nutrition per acre was off the charts, And it was a a complete diet. There were no deficiencies except for salt, of all things. Um, That's why we have taste buds, I think, for salt, is because in a natural diet, it's in deficiency. So can we produce as much meat? I don't know. I'd have to really uh, look at that. But I bet you we could really come close, because think about this. The whole continent covered with animals like there were before we killed them all? Sure. I'm willing to bet that probably could come close, because you think about, uh, I've heard over and over again, I don't know if it's true or not, I haven't verified it, that there was more pounds of bison on the plains when uh, Europeans got there than there are of cattle in the whole U.S. now. If that's true, well, obviously we can grow more meat uh, in a restoration agriculture system. And w- one of the things about uh, permaculture that I wanted to refer to earlier, and I, I kind of did, was a small thinking. Um, in permaculture, there's one of these axioms is that we want to do small and incremental changes. You know, so we're, we're careful we, we minimize the risk and all that kind of stuff. Well, I want to make one small and incremental change. I want to take all of the annual croplands in the, in the USA, Canada, around the world, and convert them back into a, a mimic, uh, system of what they were before we cut them all down. One small change. <laughs> and so, that's like, uh, how many millions, hundreds of millions of square miles? One small change, let's turn corn back into a savanna.
0: Yeah, and I think we're at a point where sooner or later we're going to have to. I, I, that, that one way or another, we, we cannot continue doing what we're doing and have it continue to work. And I think that modern agriculture is beginning to acknowledge this. I, I don't think they're anywhere near psychologically where they need to be to get your evil empire established. But I think they're getting there because you're seeing them try to address problems now with things other than just a new chemical. They're, they're at least beginning to do things like putting in rows of trees or uh, going to a no-till model or things like that. I, I think it's woefully inadequate yet, but I think that like even the people that have been chanting the mantra of corn and beans, corn and beans are realizing that you can't just keep doing this.
1: And, you know, some of my largest clients are exactly those people. They get it on a large scale. You look around the world, there are, there are multinational corporations that are starting to get it that, that perennial three-dimensional ecosystems actually is the lowest cost way to produce any ingredient for whatever your industry is. And, and the move is on. My only concern is if the, the mega corporations get there first, uh, and the people don't actually get off their butts and do something, we're going to find ourselves economic slaves in an ecological paradise instead of economic slaves on a burnt-out, sandy, radioactive cinder. Um, I would rather be in the ecological paradise, and so if I have to work for some of these you know big, horrible, evil, nasty corporations to help them go permaculture, I'm going to do that. But I would like to encourage every individual in the small everyday steps of your life. You may not think it's a big deal to stop eating bread. The implications of you and your friends and your friends, 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 friends ripple out exponentially huge. And to to walk away from Rome, we have to create a different system than the Roman system. And if we don't create it ourselves, it's going to get imposed on us.
0: I completely agree, man. And I, I want to see I want to see this done by the individual. I want to see people have ownership and the biggest reason I want to see that is so once it is established, how many times have civilizations actually done really great things and had it vanquished? And that's because people protect what they have ownership in. And if the individual doesn't have ownership in it, it will only be a matter of time before how hard it was to create is forgotten.
1: Right, that's right. <laughs> that's one think, of the things about this place here is like you know, a lot of people come and they go, oh, wow – they don't realize how hard it was to get this place established. And even now, I walk around, I'm in the cool of the shade, look at the birds and the bees, and everything's happy. I don't remember the years and years and years. Don't worry about it. It's going to be hard work. You're going to get blisters. You're going to sweat. You're going to ache. It's, it's worth it.
0: Well, uh, Mark, if folks want to learn more about you and uh, come on your seminars or, or, or any of these other things, get your DVD or your book, uh, where can they go to get more information?
1: Well, uh, once again, uh, to get the book or the DVD, go to uh, AcresUSA.com, I think that's their website, as the publisher of the book and the DVD. Uh, For information on my schedule, you can go to my uh, Facebook page, Mark Shepard, Restoration Agriculture, or my uh, website, uh, ForestAg.com.
0: Well, hey, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today. It took some doing to get you on the show, but I think it was more than worth it. And if there's anything we can ever do for you here to help you out, let us know. And if you ever have something you want to talk about and get out to an audience, we have about 100,000 people a day listening. You're always welcome back.
1: Well, very good. Thanks for the invite.
0: Folks, with that, this has been Jack Spirica today along with Mark Shepard helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
1: Everybody up there cares.